to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. My name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. So glad that you are here today. Uh, excited to worship with you all uh, this this beautiful morning uh, as we gear up for Thanksgiving. I said uh, a, a couple months ago that like I really like Halloween and it might be my favorite holiday. I kind of I might have not been. I don't know. I don't know if I told the truth. I actually think I like Thanksgiving more. I just like to eat. Any opportunity to eat, I'm in. Uh, and so I'm so excited for Thanksgiving this week. I hope that you have. Um, some some uh, really great Thanksgiving plans. If you are in town and don't have family uh, and would like to spend Thanksgiving with somebody, come let me know. We will we will either have you to my house or have you at someone's house. Uh, we're just so glad that you are uh, are here uh, this morning and would love to celebrate with you. Um, a couple of things this morning. If you are a guest, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, we have a connection card that you can fill out in your seat. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better and tell you a little bit more about us. Um, you can fill out that card and drop it in the black box by the door on the way out, my right, your left right now. Um, and um, I would love for you to do that. And for doing so, we'll get, make a $5 donation in your name to a, to a, a list of charities that we'll, we'll send you, and as well as a $5 gift card to Brassica Coffee Shop, which is around the corner. Our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. The gospel is the good news uh, that we were once far from God, separated from him because of our sin, but through the work of Jesus on the cross, to pay for our sins, we have been given new life. And if you place your faith in Christ alone, he will save you and receive anyone who will come to him. And so if you're interested in that, if you've not made that step, we'd love to talk with you about that after the service today. Uh, secondly, community. Community is the idea that we were made for relationships. God created us to, to love and serve other people. And so at City on a Hill, we do this in community groups. Uh, we do this by getting together, studying God's word, uh, having a good time, getting to know each other, um, caring for each other, and then loving and serving our neighbors. And so if you're not in a community group, just mark community group on that connection card and drop it in the box on the way out. You can also fill out a commu- uh, connection card online at coahforesthills.org slash connect. And lastly, mission, we believe this good news is too good to keep to ourselves. So we love and serve others um, because of how Christ has loved and served us. We demonstrate the gospel. But we also declare the gospel as the only way to a relationship with God. A few announcements before we jump into the text this morning. Uh, First of all, uh, we have a Discover class coming up on uh, Saturday, December 4th. Uh, There'll be breakfast served there. We'll work on childcare if you need childcare. This is the first step in our membership process, but if you go through this class, you do not have to become a member. This just tells you more about who we are as a church, what we believe, why we exist, and we invite you to come and discover more about who we are. You can sign up on our events page, coaforesthills.org slash events. Uh, and then also we're having a lessons and carols service on December 18th, uh, that evening at 6.30. So if you're not familiar with lessons and carols, it's an old tradition of reading scriptures and responding through uh, Christmas songs. So we're gonna put our own city on a hill take on this. We're gonna have an orchestra up here, but we're gonna do our thing. Uh, and we're gonna really enjoy this thing. So I really would invite you to come but also invite a friend, invite family. We want this to be a blessing to our community. And so we have signups online on our event page to make sure that we have enough space for people. So be sure to uh, do that. If we, uh, if we do overrun the space we're allowed, we may try to open up a second service for that. So be sure to um, uh, fill that out. Uh, I wanna say I'm really excited to see Tina Bradford here, right here up front, VIP seating. Um, and so um, 
If this is where it, you, know, you only get the seat if you've had a major medical procedure. So this is the this is the VIP chair. So we are so thankful that Tina is back. So thankful she has friends in town who are loving and caring for her and for a church body that has uh, served the Bradfords well. So thank you, and we're just glad that you're here uh, this morning. Last week we uh, jumped into chapter three in Ephesians and uh, began to make the turn in the book of Ephesians from the vision of the type of church that Paul envisioned for the Ephesian church to be to the possibility of how that would happen. What does this type of church look like? And so he starts to make this turn and make his pitch on what kind of, what this would look like. And at the beginning of chapter three, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus and on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he stops and makes this massive diversion, this, this, uh, this detour toward the idea of, of encouraging them. He says, I, said, I wanna encourage you because the task ahead of you is heady. The task ahead of you becoming this type of church is not something you can do in your own power and in your own strength. And so because of that, uh, I want you to be encouraged. And so he's moving here again from who you can be to how you become this. And the type of church that Paul has described at the beginning of Ephesians in chapter one and chapter two is this beautiful redeemed community, this group of people who have experienced the grace of God personally and deeply. They know that they're adopted into God's family. They know that they're his sons and daughters. They know that they've been redeemed from their sin. They've been empowered with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. They've been forgiven. They know they have a bright future together as this beautiful multi-ethnic group of people is the sign of, of what God can do powerfully in building his church, this church that really would love each other. And as we look at that vision, that's a beautiful vision. I think that's a vision that any of us would say, man, we really would love to see City on a Hill become this type of church. And I'd imagine as you read that and you hear that, you may react differently depending on your experiences. For some of you, there may be a flicker of excitement. You hear that and you're like, man, I, I want that. I want to experience that. I want to be a part of that. I, I want to truly understand that I've been forgiven. I truly want to see God move in a powerful way. And maybe you've even been a part of that. Maybe City in a Hill is not your first church. You've had some really good life-giving church experiences. But I'd imagine for others, there's a disconnect. There's a struggle. There's a disconnect because what Paul is talking about seems like a pipe dream. It doesn't seem like it's something that's possible because our experiences with church have not been like that. We've not, maybe you've never been a part of a healthy church. Maybe you've never seen a vibrant church. Maybe you've never seen a diverse church. Maybe this is for a struggle or a disconnect for you personally because you say, I, you know, I've never felt forgiven. I, I've never really experienced much joy in a relationship with God. Maybe you are a Christian and you'd say, my, my relationship with God feels really stagnant. And if I'm honest, it feels like a very small part of who I am. I really don't see the big deal because I've never really truly experienced this in the way that Paul describes. And it's a little bit like this. My, my wife is from Alaska. Um, she's from rural Alaska, the middle of nowhere. Um, if you ask her any pop culture question from the 90s, she will have no clue. She's caught up a lot. She watched all the friends. Like Jesus grew up, they didn't, they didn't do a lot there. They didn't, know, they didn't know a lot of what was going on with that. But one thing that's awful in Alaska is the internet. The internet in Alaska has historically been awful. Her dad at one point, because they could not get internet to their house, had paid a man, paid a cable guy to run a wire through the woods laying on the ground to their house so that they could have internet. And no lie, I kid you not, they would have to go outside and make sure that a moose had not kicked over the connection and have to walk back out and plug that connection in to make sure they had the slowest internet on planet earth. Uh, and so it was, it was still an awful connection. So if you've only lived in Alaska 
you've only experienced Alaskan internet, when you think about the internet, there are probably two possibilities. Either one, high-speed internet doesn't exist, or two, you just haven't experienced it yet. Maybe you've even heard rumors of friends who live in the lower 48 who have faster internet. Maybe you've not experienced this type of life-giving church that Paul describes. Maybe you've never seen a biblical church. Maybe you, you maybe think, this just doesn't exist. Or maybe it's on the personal level and you're thinking, I just can't overcome my sin struggles. I, I've not experienced real joy in Christ. Maybe it's that that's not possible. Maybe it's just you haven't experienced it yet. Paul is petitioning God for the Ephesian church to deeply experience the hope of Jesus and promising that they will become the church that God wants them to be. And he prays to God for this. In fact, when Tim Keller did a series on Ephesians many years ago, he did Ephesians 3 last, simply because Ephesians 3 is the pinnacle of Ephesians. It is the hinge upon which the door swings. And if we're gonna become the type of church that's described in verses one through two and live this out the way we see in chapters four through six is this unified church serving one another, living as a new people, loving each other and fighting against evil, it's going to take God doing it. It's gonna take God doing something in us that we cannot do on our own. And so Paul's prayer is relevant for city on a hill because we can become everything that God promises we can become if he's the one who does it. So let's look at three petitions that we can make to God in prayer for ourselves and for City on a Hill. Firstly, we pray for life-giving faith. Verse 14, we notice Paul's posture as he prays. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. The, word, the words I bow, that, that reveals two elements of, of the way that we're to come to God in prayer. Bowing is the idea of reverence. We come to God reverently and dependently. This, this posture of bowing is a sign of worship where we're bowing before God. We're trusting that he's in control. We're trusting that he's powerful enough to answer our prayers and that we will submit to him as he answers our prayers. One of the critiques lobbied against the Old Testament people, God's Old Testament people, the Hebrews, is that they would often be stiff-necked people. If you ever had a, a stubborn toddler, you understand what a stiff neck is. They literally stiffen their neck and will not go and do what you ask them to do. We often act like that, but, the, but bowing before God is this picture of letting go and relaxing, bowing our heads before God saying, I believe that you can answer my prayers. But we bow, but note who we bow before. We bow before the Father. We see that in verse 14, we bow before him. The word before in the Greek literally means face to face that we would draw to the very face of God. And this, this wording always indicates an ability to draw near a closeness. In fact, this is related to John 14, three, where Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And that where I am there, you, you may be also. In this, uh, in this verse, the word to, to myself is translated, that's the same wording. It means that we can draw unto God. And as we do so, he invites us into a personal relationship with him. We come to him reverently and dependently, but we also come to him with intimacy and expectancy. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted Jesus, God is inclined to answer your prayers. Why? Because you're a part of his family. We are his children. 
And remember at the very beginning of chapter three, it says, for this reason, Paul, here at verse 14, it says, for this reason, I bow. This is connecting us back to everything that we saw in chapter two. Because of what God has done in us, chapter two, verse 19 says, so that then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In the very same way we've been received and invited in as family, we've received a new name and that with every family in, on heaven and earth, those who have already left, whose faith has now become sight and those who are on earth waiting for their hope of life forever with God to come true, we can petition God in prayer. And it's important that we understand this, that our position is one of reverence and dependency and intimacy and expectancy because we're praying to a father. And this posture and this relationship means that God is willing to answer our prayers. And he answers prayers that are for our good. And that's why the first plea that Paul makes is a prayer that God will always answer. It is a strength and a power to live out our faith. So why would, why would Paul... Why would he pray this? Why would he see the need to pray for us to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in our inner being? Because we will try to do otherwise. We are tempted to live a life for God without the power of God. We will attempt to do things that God has called us to do and obey in our own strength. We will try to fight sin. We will try to love others in this church. We'll try to be a good neighbor. We will try to share the gospel. You can even try to plant a church in your own strength. And all of those things are good things, but if they are done in our own power, they will crush us. And if you try to do this, one of three things will happen. You will either get prideful, grow weary, or give up. You will get prideful, grow weary, or give up. Because if you somehow manage to do one of these things, and let's say you share the gospel with your neighbor and somehow God works despite of you and, and this person comes to faith in Jesus, it's easy to go, I'm just a really good gospel sharer. I have the right evangelism method. I know how to do this. It's easy to get prideful, but it's also easy to grow weary. Just so weary of, of doing the hard work of fighting against sin and trying to obey Jesus and, and just kind of white knuckling our way to obedience. And ultimately we can just give up and say, yeah, it's just, it's just not worth trying to love that person. It's just not worth trying to expend myself for this. And often when we pray for strength from God, we are trying to pray as if it's something we don't have. Like it's some sort of detached spiritual force, like almost like spiritual steroids. We're like, if I can just inject enough strength into myself, I can do this thing for God. Almost like we're being given something that we don't have. But 2 Peter 1.3 tells us, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Notice what Paul is saying. He's not saying you need something new. He's saying you need to tap into what you already have. Verse 16, that from the, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through, through who? His spirit in your inner being. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you have been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in you, meaning that the Spirit is there to comfort you. The Spirit is there to help you. The Spirit is there to point you to Jesus. But it's one thing to have a bank account. It's another thing to use it. It's one thing to have a bank account. It's another thing to actually make a withdrawal from that bank account. Years ago, when I was in high school, um, my brother, we went to, went to Sonic one, one day after church. Uh, and, um, and we pull up and his friends with him. And we, we all go up there and I'm, I'm gonna get a slushie. I'm gonna get a Route 44 size slushie. And I look at Brian like, hey man, do you want anything? He's like, no, nah, I, I don't have any money. 
Say, oh, man, that's okay, buddy. I'll get it. So I pay for it. And his friend goes, wait a minute, Brian, didn't you just get paid today? He's like, well, yeah, but I didn't want to spend it. He had all this money in the bank that he was unwilling to spend. And the very same way, many of us are unwilling to tap into what God has already given us, and that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The power that has risen Jesus from the dead resides in us. And we are almost, if you were to extend this metaphor, we are comfortable digging for change in the couch and under the seats in our car when we've been given the endless supply of God's grace that is available to us. Not some sort of mystic power, not some sort of nebulous strength, but that all we need to please God is given to us because we have a relationship with God himself. That God lives in you to empower you to believe it, to follow him. And isn't that so much better than doing it in our own strength? This is what old pastors used to call communion with God. They would call this communion with God. That we walk with God, that we abide with God, that we, we long after God, that he empowers us to live out our faith. When we realize that we can be strengthened with power through communion with God, we see that this is so that we can experience the faith that God has given us and that we can live out this faith and power. And it's not that our faith is simply an idea, but it becomes actual. It's not the idea that God is a comforter, but God actually comforts you. It's not the idea that God can remove shame, but you've experienced God removing your shame. And to, to really drive this home, Paul gives another example to show us what this life with God looks like. And he says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Through the spirit in you, Christ dwells in you and he is taking up residence. Has anybody ever had a friend who couch surfed and like crashed at your house? Did any of you ever do that in college where you bounced around a little bit and you found your way into a couch? If your buddy is sleeping over at your house and sleeping on your couch and starts making suggestions about paint colors on the wall, that's not appropriate, right? But if you offer that friend a room to stay in, you'd say, you know what? It's okay. Put the furniture you want in here. You can paint the walls. You have some, some say-so in how your room is going to look. Richard Koken says that when Christ, the spirit of Christ takes up residence in our lives, he redecorates our souls with his holy character and he fills our hearts with more and more of his love. The reason that the picture here is, is Christ dwelling in our hearts is our heart, in, in uh, the way the Bible understands it, is the center of our will, our very desires, our very emotions, our very loves. What Jesus is doing by coming into the very center of our life is he is redirecting and reordering what we love. And so when Paul is praying this, praying that this would be a reality, he's saying, I increasingly want Jesus to move in. I increasingly want Jesus to unpack and get comfortable. He's already there, but I want him to start searching the rooms of your heart and taking his rightful place as Lord and King over your life. Church, this is my prayer for us, that this would be true of us, that we would be strengthened to, be more, to more fully know him, to more fully be filled by him. So where in your life does Jesus need to move some things around? Where in your life does he need to reorder things? Where in your life does he need to make some changes? The second prayer I have for us and that we can pray is that we pray for Christ to deepen our love. We pray that Jesus would deepen our love because when Jesus has our hearts, he starts to change what we love the most. He starts to change how you love. And to be the kind of church that Paul envisions, we have to understand how deeply God 
loves us. Do you understand how deeply Jesus loves you? That Jesus would come and lay his life down for you so that he could have relationship with you, that he would take care of what separates you from God, your own sin and your rebellion, giving you his very own life. And Jesus wants you to be rooted and grounded in this love. He did all this so you'd be rooted and grounded in love. A tree is meant to be rooted in the ground. That is where it flourishes the most. A tree is meant to dig deep roots so that when it's rooted in the ground, it can, it can stand against the winds and the trials of life. City planners used to think that only certain trees would work in the city because a tree in the city had to dig deep roots. They didn't want the, tree, uh, the, the, the roots to go outward. They wanted the roots to go down because as roots go outward, they start messing up the sidewalk. But what they found over time is that they were wrong. Any tree can dig deep roots. It just requires three things. To thrive, a tree needs oxygen, water, and soil loose enough to let the roots penetrate. That's it. Oxygen, water, and soil loose enough to let the roots penetrate. How do we become rooted in the love of Christ? And and to kind of probably press a metaphor a little too far, the word spirit is the word pneuma in Greek, which literally means breath. In the very beginning, it said that God breathed life into man. And the very spiritual breath that we breathe is the Holy Spirit who is living in us. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? He said, I can give you living water that you'll never thirst again. As we drink in the gospel and we soak in the love of God, God grows us and he deepens the roots of our love and our hope in God's faithful care towards us that when the winds and the waves of life come at us, we can stand. But it also requires, requires soil that has to be right has to be penetrable, it has to be soft. And so what is God doing in our souls and in our hearts to make them soft? He has, sometimes has to break up hard ground. What's interesting about roots is they will find every crevice and every crack and they'll find every open place to find their way to dig down, to get sturdy and steady. And so the stuff that God often removes from our lives that feel like they're leaving a hole are there the very places that his love seeks to fill. What is God breaking up in your life right now? What is happening in you? Maybe it's loss. Maybe it's anxiety. You just feel purposelessness. You feel weak. You feel the frailty. You feel exhausted. These are all places that God is pouring his love into your heart to dig deep roots into his love. Being rooted is also the sense of being at ease not wondering, not having to look elsewhere. You're rooted, you're fixed. And this is why St. Augustine several hundred years ago said, you made us for yourself, O Lord, that our heart is restless until it rests in you. God wants us to be rooted because all of our loves, all of our desires leave us restless and constantly looking for more, constantly looking for something different. But what Paul is saying in verse 18 is, I want you to be rooted so you can see the comprehensiveness of God's love, the satisfaction of God's love for you. I want you to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, and height, and depth of the love of Christ. I want you to see the breadth of the love of Christ as Jesus' arms are open wide to receive all who will come to him, all who will humble themselves, whether Jew or Gentile, whether rich or poor, anyone who's willing to come and receive Jesus can come. The length of God's love that God would suffer long with you 
that Jesus paid for every sin you will ever commit, past, present, or future, and that his love will last into eternity, that you would understand and comprehend the height of God's love, that he would exalt you to an intimate relationship with himself in the depth of God's love, that Christ suffered in agony on the cross for you, paying for the deepest and worst sins that you could ever commit. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to get that. I want you to understand that in the very deepest part of who you are. Eugene Peterson is a famous pastor in, uh, in the Northeast or the Northwest. Um, you know, he, uh, he never had a large church, uh, but his son at his funeral said that my dad had one sermon. He said it may have been packaged different ways, but he literally had one sermon and it's to convince you how much Jesus loves you. I think if Paul had a sermon that he's telling us here, he's trying to convince us how much Jesus loves us and not just in a, in a head knowledge way, but in a heart knowledge way. This is why in verse 19, it says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It is one thing to know something, to know about something. It's another thing to truly know it. Now, Paul here is not being anti-intellectual. He's not saying don't study theology. He's not saying don't study doctrine. We're not anti-doctrine. We believe in good, deep theology. But it can't stop with knowing about it. It has to surpass that in a way that we experience it. And in fact, if we experience it, it will only make our doctrine come alive even more. Look, I've loved the Red Sox since 1996, only because I hate the Yankees so much. Um, I hate the Yankees with an undying passion because of the 96 World Series. The Braves were up two games to none. Jim Leyritz hits a home run in the sixth inning and my 14-year-old dreams were crushed. Okay, and so I have hated the Yankees ever since. So I decided I'm gonna pull for the Red Sox. I learned a lot about the Red Sox. Um, I learned all about the Green Monster and Pesky Pole and Sweet Caroline and Jim Rice and Ted Williams. You go all the way down the line. The 86-year curse. All, I learned all about all of those things. And I, have, I love Fenway Park. But before 2015, I only knew about Fenway Park. I've seen pictures, I'd read about it, I watched games on TV. I'd only seen it on TV. I'd only known about it. But in 2015, I got to experience it for the first time. Now, did my past knowledge and all the things I learned about it, did they cease to matter? No, but they came alive. But I, could, I could see the green monster I could experience as we sang Sweet Caroline, something that I only knew about in my head, but now I knew about through experience. In the very same way, Paul wants us to comprehend the love of Christ in such a way that we experience it, that we understand we are forgiven. That we experience the grace of God in our lives. We experience the removal of shame and that we will fill with the fullness of all that God would give us. Now, backing up just a little bit, a quick comment on verse 18. It says that we would comprehend with who? With all the saints. We comprehend the gospel best. We comprehend the love of God best when we do it with other people. And I would actually venture to say in verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge is also connected to this idea of being comprehending with all the saints. What does this mean? It means that we best comprehend and experience the love of Christ in community. We best experience the, and know the love of Christ as, the, as a church. And this is why I, we press community groups so hard. We're like, we want you to experience this because we want you to do the one another's of life in loving and caring for each other. And this is something that we grow into. This isn't something, we don't have ready-made community. We're a brand new church. We, we've been around a little over a year. Uh, we haven't even been meeting together weekly for, for a year, since, only, only since Easter. Uh, we have to build this. We have no history to build off of. 
Is City on a Hill a perfect church? No, absolutely not. But oftentimes what we, we will do is we will wait for perfect community. We'll wait for everything, wait for everything to feel right. We'll, we'll wait for a perfect church before we lean in and say, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna love these people this way. But what if God wanted to grow you by growing you with other people? What if he wanted you to experience and grow in the love he has for you by loving other imperfect people, by growing toward one another as you grow toward him? The last prayer that we see from Paul is that we pray for God to expand our vision, to expand our vision for what God can do. I love these verses because they draw our eyes away from ourselves and what we can do to what God alone can do. When we have communion with God, when we deeply experience the love of Christ, we begin to pray prayers that are bigger than us. We pray God-sized prayers. We pray God-shaped prayers. Our vision for what we pray for oftentimes is too small. Now, what I'm not saying is that there's never a prayer that's too small. I'm not saying you have a a small prayer, but I think the expectations of how we expect God to answer our prayers is often too small. Often we think about just the everyday things in life that we pray for. So imagine you're in sales and you're praying to God, help me be ethical at work. Help me not to take shortcuts. Help me to, to be honest about my earnings. One vision for prayer would be, you know, I just need God to help me be better so I don't get in trouble. That vision is way too small. But if your vision is Jesus, I need you. I wanna honor you in my work. I wanna do this from a right heart. That's deeper. That's a bigger ask. Because you're not just asking God to help you avoid bad decisions. You're asking God to change your heart. It's a bigger ask for us to ask God to do immeasurably more than we could ever possibly imagine to do something in us to create deep heart righteousness. But not just that, but also that God would draw our eyes to his glory. It says in verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. As we experience the love of Christ, as we pray, our prayers are shifted towards God's glory. What we're doing is we're giving God credit, we're giving him honor and we deflect the glory away from ourselves towards him. For City on a Hill, my prayer for us is that we would be a church that prays big prayers and prays prayers that only God can answer. When we were prepping to plant this church, our prayer was not to be another worship service. We didn't want to just be a gathering uh, that Christians could get together. And listen, we're glad you're here. I'm not saying if you're a Christian, I'm not saying leave. Be, be clear about that. But we were praying that God would do something really incredible through us. He would do something kingdom-sized and kingdom-minded through us and that God would work in such incredible ways that we would see marriages restored that we would see addictions healed, that we would see skeptics and those far from God being saved by Jesus and being brought close. What if our prayers were so big? And I don't mean like numbers. I don't just mean we have a bunch of people in a room, but the scope of our prayers were so big that only Jesus working in and through us would make them happen. Every time that we pray for an unbelieving friend to come to faith in Jesus, we are praying for God to do something we can't do. Every time we ask for God for favor in our city, every time we ask God to heal someone, every time we pray for an opportunity, we're asking for him to do more than we could possibly ever imagine. 
this uh, past week, our elders, myself and Matt Waldrop and Matt Harris, who's up in the sound booth, we got away for a couple of days to pray and plan and, and focus and feast and just enjoy time together. But we labored in prayer over you. We labored in prayer over this church. And we reflected over the last year and we looked at all the things that God has done in a weird, crazy pandemic year. Uh, we looked at the things that didn't get done and we're like, man, like, that's okay. God took us a different direction. And we began to look at the future and we began to think, you know, it reminded me of something that Tim Keller once said. He said, you often overestimate what you can do in five years and you underestimate what God can do in 20. We're praying for God to give us long, fruitful ministry here for the good of the city of Boston to do something only he can get credit for. So as we close, I wanna challenge you to pray in a couple of ways. I want you to pray for deeper communion with God. I want you to pray for Jesus to, to, as he dwells in your heart, to begin to redecorate and remove some things around. What would it look like for you to have deeper communion with him? I want you to pray for a deeper understanding of God's love. Because the more deeply you understand God's love for you, the more fully you can love other people. When we, we're struggling to love another, I mean, look, if we're gonna be a diverse church, but whether that's you know, uh, ethnically, whether that's politically, socioeconomically, personalities, we're gonna, there are gonna be times where we struggle. And, and my lack of love for someone is, is, is it's a me problem. Asking God to more help, me, help me more deeply understand God's love. And thirdly, pray for a greater vision for God's glory in your own life and in the life of City on a Hill. Let's pray those three things. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I wanna invite you, your first step is to place your faith in Jesus. What you see, as we talked about this morning, the very riches of God that are given to you through him, that if you trust Jesus, if you place your faith in Jesus, you give your life to Jesus, the life he promises here can be yours. Let's pray. 